everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Entrepreneur Rx. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Daniel Stickler, who's co-founder and chief medical officer of the Perion Center for Human Potential and chief science officer for the Perion Academy. Dan, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, John. Thanks. So this subject is near and dear to my heart. So for those that don't really have a sense of what epigenetics means and what, what you do, can you give us, give us the elevator pitch about what you're doing? Uh, uh, elevator pitch. Okay, yeah. it's, a long, it's a long elevator ride. Yeah, the long short of it is we practice what we call complexity medicine. And it's kind of taking medicine and looking at the human system as a complex system rather than as a complicated system or a simple system like most of medicine has done since the time of the Greeks, where we shifted. The Greeks had it right. I mean, they, they had the, the human system as complex and it requires complex thinking. And the, the classic example of this is root cause. There is no root cause in a complex system. And I challenge physicians all the time. And I say, you know, give me one thing that you think is a root cause. And we can take them down the rabbit hole of understanding how one of the sayings is that when you focus on the, on the roots, you've missed the contributions of the soil. And this is what's happened in a lot of medicine is we've drifted off the idea of a human system that is based on probabilities, that's based on patterns and responses, not on cause and effect, which is what most of it's focused on right now. So epigenetics was one of the things that started me down that path in understanding the complex adaptive nature of the human system. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we have this fixed code of genetics and we select portions of that code for every cell that, that's going to be used. But on top of that, we also have this really fine control over the expressions of these genes. And we can control upregulation, we can control downregulation, we can turn genes off, we can turn them on. And throughout our lives, this system adapts. And so what was easily predictable based on input A, B, and C that would equal D no longer follows that same pattern because the system has adapted and changed in that time frame, And this is why, you know, the quantified self stuff, which is another piece of what we do is so important to measure the patterns that are occurring and the adaptations over time that we can see in the human system. So epigenetics really was what started me down thinking in a more complex nature, because I realized the standard system didn't work very well when it came to the epigenetic expressions. All right. So let me, let me back up a little bit. So here you are, you're a board certified vascular surgeon, you're doing an aorta by fem. And then one day you say, huh, there may be something more to this. What was the genesis of you? Because that, that's a big leap. I mean, vascular yeah. surgeons are, are an odd bunch and all of a sudden you're doing this. What was that leap? <laughs> yeah, the, what happened though is I actually chose surgery because it was an area of medicine that I saw was not postponing death in a stepwise fashion. I went into medicine thinking that it was something where we could work with people to, to work, to get them healthier, to make them better at what they're doing, better functional. And I realized this after medical school, that it was all based on disease model and pharmacology. And, and I was just like, this isn't going to work for me. So I couldn't do, I had a choice. I was pediatrics or surgery. And I went down the surgery road because I liked working with my hands. And then I got into that. And I, you know, especially doing vascular surgery, you realize that 
everything that happened in vascular surgery could have been prevented years and years ago. And we're just fixing the problems that we've caused with our lifestyles. And so I started doing, I actually went to Cynogenics and trained in 2005. And that was just to learn hormones at that time. But then I realized that they had a model that worked for healthy people too. And I said, wow, this is really game changing for me. And I started doing it as a hobby. And over time, when my wife joined the practice, she has 30 years of work in the Air Force. She was a colonel and worked in human performance. And she worked with stress in the brain in the Air Force. And we started adding pieces. So we started off with just, let's optimize the human body, the physical body itself. And we started getting into stress and mind after that. And then we progressed into more of psychosocial and and really the spiritual aspect. I mean, I, I hate the term spiritual because it's so people have their own definitions of it. But, you know, in reviewing the last 20 years of working with high performers, I realized that there were five categories that people looked for that would explain why they had an exceptional life or why they had not. And the five categories were one body. So how do we optimize the body? You know, how do we create a body that can function so that anytime we have a thought that we want to do something, some experience we want to have, we have the physical ability to, to obtain that. And, you know, you can take that too far though, too, because I can, before COVID, I spent probably 20 years maintaining about eight to 12% body fat that the 20 years prior to COVID. And it took a lot of work to do that, not only from a fitness standpoint, but from a really strict nutritional standpoint. And with COVID, I realized priority-wise, I started looking at things that I was doing and I said, you know, do I need to keep that eight to 12% or could I really step back just a little bit on the time commitment that I'm doing with this and maintain like a a 12 to 15% body fat and still be able to to do, I mean, what was my purpose of keeping that eight to 12%? And I said, you know, it's the functional aspect of it, but can I maintain that functional aspect at a higher body fat? And I realized I could. So, you know, I stepped back from, from being that aggressive with it, but also in the body, I mean, you've got to look at even how the brain functions, the neurochemistry, the neuroelectric aspects of it. So we do work with, we map the brain, brainwave patterns. We do psychophysiologic stress profiles to see how the autonomic nervous system responds to stress and things that we can do for that. Body composition is obviously important for multiple areas, but it's more around being functional and being able to do those things. The second area is what we call mind and mind includes mind and mindset because a lot of people we found had deficiencies in the mindset. You know, we think about Maslow's pyramid and we say, you know, we have these basic needs met and we're, and we're all good, but it's no different. If you have a financial deficiency, if you feel like you need to make more money and and that's deficiency thought in your head, then it's going to occupy so much of your bandwidth that you don't have, as Maslow said, the the freedom to explore the self-actualization aspect of it. It's just like the starving man on the street. I mean, he's not going to go out and learn the violin. I mean, his whole focus for his entire day is I've got to get food. We have this with these other things that we don't consider, like the financial. And I work with people with 14 digit incomes and people with, you know, in the hundreds of thousands. But when I looked at it, it was like the magic number seems to be 500 million net worth is the point where people don't care about the money anymore. 
which was really strange to me because I had people with hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth and they were still focused on, well, I've got to have this just in case. I've got to do this just in case. And we started working with these financial deficiencies in a lot of clients and it made a huge difference. So when I say mindset, that's what I'm referring to. But we also look at patterns that occur in the brain over time, especially with the default mode network of the brain. We get locked into these patterns that they're designed to conserve the energy of the brain, but they also lock us into things. They're actually seeing now that there are patterns of depression and anxiety that are coded in that default mode network. And those are hard to crack. We actually started doing it using ketamine and brain stimulation. The ketamine seems to take the default mode network offline briefly and allows the brain to experience patterns that it hadn't experienced before. So while we're training and, and in training a pattern with the electrical stimulation, the ketamine's on board and disrupting the default mode network, allowing them to have that plasticity to learn something new. So the mind was definitely one of the areas that, that we really focused on. Another area is purpose. And I know this is another cliche, but people that don't have purpose, they really flounder. I mean, you look at the number of people who die shortly after retiring from work, they, they no longer feel like they have a purpose, but purpose is easy to find. And it's also something that's dynamic. It's not a fixed thing. Like this is my life's purpose and it's always going to be there. I mean, it changes over time, but in identifying that has been a real key for a lot of our clients. The other area that we look at is peak experiences. We call these all experiences or experiences of profound gratitude. And we, we would ask people, you know, when was the last time you had a real awe experience or a real experience of profound gratitude? And these are, I mean, these are exceptional people coming in. I've got philosophers, I've got authors, I've got business leaders, military people that reach the top of their game. And they're having trouble thinking of the last time they experienced awe. And to me, that's, that's very sad because I feel like I experience awe on a daily basis or some profound gratitude almost daily. But we would ask them that as part of our autonomic stress system analysis. We wanted to see what their system did when they were feeling that awe experience. And I would sit there with people and I'd say, well, when was the last time? They're like, I can't even remember. I was like, well, do you have a child? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah. When my child was born, I'm like, the kid's 18 years old. You've got to, you got to have these peak experiences at a more regular basis. I mean, we spend all this time in life working to save money for retirement and we don't experience life. You know, we're being in life and not doing life. I, I tell them, look back at your childhood and, and what experiences do you remember from childhood? What do you, what are your fondest memories of childhood? And almost always a trip or event that occurred with the parents and the, and the other kids, they don't remember the gifts and all the, you know, the Christmas presents and all of that. Nobody yeah. recalls that, but they do recall the experiences. That's what sticks. And my wife and I, we have five boys and we have always tried to create peak experiences for them. So we, we take them on, on the trips that we go on and, and on the trips, we always do something that's just spectacular that just puts them in that awe state. And they remember all of that and they love that. And now it's a regular routine for them. But the last one is love and, and love's a tough one because this is, I had a, one of my billionaire clients who was sitting doing one of the autonomic nervous system announcements, 72 years old. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, I would give up everything I have to have a relationship like you and your wife. And I mean, that just, 
he was very serious about that. And, and you don't think about those kind of things, but love for people is very fleeting. I think they always have doubts about love. They wonder if they're actually feeling love. And, and this is the other issue is that we all intellectualize, especially doctors. Doctors are notorious for this. They intellectualize feelings because it's hard to empathize with every person that you encounter. So you learn to kind of shut down that, those feelings and you focus on intellectualizing it. And just in the last three years, I realized, you know, I intellectualized everything. I mean, as a surgeon, you kind of don't want to have empathy, especially in trauma surgery and doing that. You just, the empathy would be too painful. So you kind of shut that down, but it translates into the other feelings. When people would ask me, what does love feel like? I'd be like, oh, that's like when you do this and this happens and they behave like this. Well, that's not how it feels. That's what it looks like. That's an intellectualizing of love. And I realized I never felt love. It's ironic because my wife and I, we've been, been married 14 years and it wasn't until four years ago. And we thought, well, I mean, we had a great relationship prior to that, but four years ago, when I kind of came online with feeling love, I was just like, okay, this is all new to me. And it was like falling in love with her for the first time. And the relationship has just gone crazy after that. But it's not something that, that we expected. And this is, again, something that we're working with with our clients in the medical practice now. So those are the five paths that we've, wow. we've identified. <laughs> well, that, that was a lot to digest. But it sounds like <laughs> if you had to, but I loved it, but it sounds like if you narrow it down, much of this is, is mindset. It's a huge part because, of it. Yeah, because love is mindset. The awe experience of gratitude is certainly mindset because, you know, so I, I fly a lot and you know, I'll be flying through the clouds and it'll be 30,000 feet and the sun will be setting. And I'm like, I am so incredibly blessed and lucky to see yeah. this few people get to see and it's, it's awing. I mean, it, it blows me away every time I've done it for 30 years. Yep. But that's kind of a mindset. And I realize sometimes I'm flying, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to land. And then, and then the other part of my brain goes, are you an idiot? You're doing something <laughs> that you love that few people get to do. What is wrong with you? And then I, I can flip back and say, oh, duh, yes, this is amazing. Can you fix mindset? Yes. Can you change how? Because I think ways. I was born um, with it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people were. Honestly, for me, it was psychedelics. I don't know <laughs> if we want to go down this path. Yeah, no, here, this is awesome. No, yeah, please. You know, it was experiences with psychedelics that allowed me to feel, you know, with empathogens, you can, you have this amazing feeling like MDMA is an empathogen. It's not really a psychedelic but it allows you to actually feel emotions when you don't, or even when you do, it just amplifies what you're, you've gotten out of that. I did ayahuasca back in 2012, and that was my first foray into it. We were in Peru and I just thought, you know, That's I want to do foray. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was quite the foray. You went zero to a hundred. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was pretty intense. And I brought it, I brought the feeling back with me, but it was fleeting, got back into my routines and it just kind of disappeared, you know, with COVID and being able to be out of the country more and other things, you know, people say, how can you be out of the country more with COVID? It was easy for me because I didn't have to be around anywhere. I could do everything remotely, which is pretty much what I do anyway, but I was able to try all different things. Psilocybin was, was pretty profound. It again is one of those ones that breaks up the default mode network. So it allows you to have these experiences. And when you're with somebody who's a good facilitator with that, 
you can really use it to work on mindset issues and deficiencies that you didn't even think you had. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I do have that. Ketamine, also pretty wonderful. We do some ketamine work in our clinics with clients and we do some like low dose. We use the nasal spray when we do the brain training. We'll do very low dose for what we call a lucid ketamine session where we can talk and ketamine allows you to access memories that have been stored away that you don't have real good access to normally, or even the journey dose ketamine for, we use it for PTSD, but it also works for people that don't perceive they have PTSD, but we actually all have some degree of it in some way within us. Those have all been very profound in allowing me to understand myself more. And I think that was the whole thing is I just, I just didn't know who I was. And a lot of that mindset changed with that. I mean, certainly most people can work on mindset stuff when they start to identify what it is. And this is one part of our intake. I mean, I spend four hours with every client when they first join us and we have a lot of psychosocial questions in there and we start to identify deficiencies and we can point these out to them. And suddenly they, they realize they have those deficiencies and we tell them how that can limit them in different ways. And so we put in practices that can help them to really work on that and really expand their, their life experience for sure. So this is so interesting. So I use ketamine all the time, obviously, on patients in, in yep. the emergency department. And I've, I've yet to have any of them wake up and say, you know, it, it really anything. But, yep. you know, I've read a lot more about microdosing psychedelics and the benefits. And frankly, I've just been terrified. Dude, I've never taken a drug in my life. I've never yep. taken a legal drug in my life. Would be terrified to do it. How did you make that in ayahuasca, you know, as the major leagues, how did you go from vascular surgery to ayahuasca? Did you just say, screw it, I'm going to try it because I want to see what it does? Yeah, I've always been the curiosity guy. You know, I read about something and I learn it as in-depth as I can and, and then I experiment with it. So ayahuasca was one of the first ones that somebody had told me about their experience. And I was like, okay, that doesn't sound right. So I started reading on it and reading on it and looking at the studies that have been done on it. And it fascinated me. And I was like, okay, it looks pretty safe. And the experience can be pretty profound, it seemed like. And so I did that. I mean, I'm always like that though, like, like peptides. You know, Five years ago, I started really diving into peptides. I hadn't really paid any attention to what peptides were at that point. And when I dive into something, it is always a deep dive. I even created a physician course to teach them peptides. And I became kind of a peptide guru for some people. We teach it in our academy even. But that's the way I, I do things is I dive in, I read everything, learn everything I can about it. And then I experiment on myself with a lot of things. And I'm around a lot of people that also do the same thing. And then we translate that into uh, clinical care when it's an approved substance. We did the same thing with uh, the community we hang out with around the psychedelics is really finding out all we could about it. I mean, you know, I can pull up my documents on like MDMA where I've got probably 600 research papers on MDMA. I actually had an hour and a half call with Gull Dolan, who is the MD PhD that leads the MDMA research at Hopkins. I just, that's just what I do is I want to learn absolutely everything I can about something when I'm looking at it in, in the sense of human enhancement in some way. I want to learn all about that anti-aging. I mean, I can tell you everything you want to know about, about rapamycin, about apitalon, about the senolytics, even formulated a senolytic formula. I just go all in on anything that I have an interest in. Yeah, I, I clearly need to stay away from you. So <laughs> I'm joking. So I think anybody who listens to this will be, the next question that we're going to ask is, 
All right, Dan, what do you take? Like, what is your go-to daily regimen of the rapamycin, the metformins, the, what do you take it on a daily basis after all your research? Because none of us, many of us won't want to go take the deep dive you did yeah. for, like I told you, I read the book Lifespan. A yeah. lot of us will not have the time, energy, or intelligence to do that. Well, and here's the issue. I just spoke at the biohacking conference, Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Conference. And I was talking about this yeah. very subject. The problem we have is that everybody wants the fix for each thing. And they're not organizing it into a, a real organized solution for what you're trying to achieve. And you can't take something and say, okay, everybody should be taking this and everybody should be taking this. I mean, it's individually based. I mean, yes, I take rapamycin. Yes, I take metformin. I take several different peptides, but I'm, from a supplement basis, I'm pretty minimalist. You know, I take a low-dose multivitamin, omega-3s, vitamin D, B12 injections, and that's my foundation. And everything else is what I call more biospecific. So they're designed to create some response in my particular biosystem. And I take, I take a synolytic formula, but not on a regular basis. And because you don't want constant synolysis going on in the system. And a lot of people misunderstand that and they take it all the time. Rapamycin, not really a synolytic, but what it works really well for is it mitigates the SASPs, the senescent associated secretory profile of the senescent cells. Right. It mitigates it super well. And it's got, it's got other mTOR effects with it. So it's hitting the aging system from probably five of the nine hallmarks of aging, which is really cool. But even with the nine hallmarks of aging, even if you address all of them, you still miss the fact that aging is not a, a disease with cause and effect. Aging is a complex process. And so trying to, to find one thing that's going to change this isn't going to work. We've got to like, look at your system where it is. I mean, you know, I look at people and I, I see, I have clients that are, you know, 60 years old that they have a, an epigenetic age of 52. And then I have others that have a, an epigenetic age of 66 that are the same age, but from the standpoint of how I'm going to address their system, it's going to be very different with each one. Right. So did, would you say peptides, what are you referring to? Are you referring to NAD and NMN? No, no. What I'm referring to is the one that the U.S. government doesn't like too much, which is thymus and alpha. I like using thymus and alpha intermittently just to feel a boost to the immune system. And, you know, there's pretty good research data out there right now, but it's been taken off the U.S. market here in the last several years or several weeks because of the, all of the people that were using it for COVID, which I still think it was a valid, a valid intervention to do, but we can't recommend it now for COVID. Uh, and that's why the compounding pharmacies kind of lost their access to it at that point, because of all the use in that regard. There's stuff like a pitalon, which is available through one compounding pharmacy here in the United States, but it doesn't have a lot of updated research on it. I mean, Cavinson's studies six year and a 12 year study. And Cavinson's pretty well respected for his his credibility overall and his really adherence to protocol in studies. And the six and 12 year study were pretty convincing, but we don't have follow-ups. So with Epitalon, I'm just like, well, maybe uh, it looks good from what we've seen so far, but I can't tell you anything for sure. There are peptides for hair growth that, that work very well. There are peptides for healing the soft tissue, which are nice to do intermittently just to kind of boost the system and, and kind of reset the system like BPC-157 and thymus and beta-4. 
I mean, we've got hundreds, we've got access to hundreds of peptides that work really well. I mean, I love growth hormone releasing hormone peptides. They have such a nice natural feedback system that you don't, even if you took too much, the system would just say, no, we're not going to respond to that because they're familiar. Peptides are Peptides are generally a biologic that the body's familiar with. It, it's not like a supplement or a medication that's foreign where the body has on-target and off-target effects. Generally with peptides, you get very specific laser-focused on-target effects with what you're trying to achieve. With very little or no off-target effects because Correct. they're, they're yeah. human-derived. Yeah, human what do you think, going back to this, the, the mindset issue, what you said really struck me about empathy in, in physicians. It almost seems like we're trained out of that. And I think, you know, because if you're an empath and a physician, you know, you've got a hard physician road ahead of you yeah. because like you said, your trauma surgery, emergency medicine, hospice, you'd be eaten alive every day. You would be. But what happens is we turn it off in every part of our life. Exactly. That's the issue. And that was my next question. When you're treating physicians or working with physicians, what do you see as our biggest challenge? Because I see that as one of them. I, it seems to me that it's hard to turn on and turn off empathy that's situational dependent. Yeah. I mean, they, it's feeling emotions. They don't, we don't tend to feel emotions. It's just the way, way it's happened. And over time, I mean, you know, you get beat up in, in medical school, you get beat up in residency. I mean, you know, it's just designed to get you out of that, that feeling mode. And it translates to other parts of life is my feeling. I don't think it's that we, we are non-empathetic and that's why we go into medicine. I think it's that, that medicine trains out a lot of that in us. It only happened, you know, for me, when I got out of surgery and started doing real concierge practice, I was able to reduce my hours of clinical practice a week to about 20 hours. The rest of my time I spent studying, researching, having peak experiences, all of that, but I wasn't driven by the money. I mean, I was making, I was making probably 800,000 a year at the time. I just walked away from surgery. And I think my first year doing this concierge stuff, I made about 53,000, I think was the number, which was shocking to me. But it, what was not shocking to me is my lifestyle didn't really change that much. I adapted my lifestyle to the income. And this is what happens over time is as we make more and more money, our lifestyle adapts. So we can't even imagine taking any reductions. And we're just like, we got to make more. We got to make more. You make more. And then suddenly your lifestyle adjusts and you're back stuck in that same mode. Yeah. I have this discussion with physicians all the time. Quit trying to match your lifestyle, match your income with your lifestyle, keep your mm -hmm. lifestyle the same. And hopefully yeah. your income goes up. It's interesting that you said that you had this peg number, pegged at, you know, half a billion dollars where that's that yeah, I was watching the show. I, I just started watching the show Billions, and they talk about the FU money. It's yeah. one of the things that says, you know, it's, it's nice to have because then you can actually say it. And so from your vantage point, about 500 million is that time when the switch turns off and they're like, okay, I got it. doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. And it's a very small sampling. You know, I've got like, I think I have like yeah. 10 clients that are over 500 million. I think five of those are in the billions. And then I've got probably... 30 clients that are, you know, below that 500 million mark, but there's not much difference in the ones that are in that 300 to 500 million as the people that are in the, you know, 800,000 to 5 million mark. Yeah. I mean, they're, yes, they have a different lifestyle aspect of it, but they're still striving to make more, to have more, to have more safety in that they have enough that they're comfortable with. 
Yeah, it's funny. I've you know I I've had this thought of much more lately as I'm getting older. Like okay, I've been really busting it for years. At some point, I want to slow down and enjoy it. But then you're like, well, gosh, if I do that, then I'll, you can just see how the wheels turn in people's head. Yep. And then they never stop, or they stop, and then they you know the airline pilots who are high likelihood of being dead five years after they retire because, as you right. said, they've lost their purpose. So if you had to tell physicians collectively, now this will be a large sample size, what would you say to us and say, okay, guys, if you do these five things, you will improve a lot of aspects of your life. And these are the slam dunks. So one for me was sleep. You know, I read the book, Why We Sleep. Mm-hmm. It was a aha moment for me because I was always the I'll sleep when I'm dead sort of mentality. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I have sleep apnea. Oh, you know, lately it's been, you know, breathing through my nose and being concentrated on, on after reading the book Breath. What, what, what would you tell us as a collective, what we should be doing that we're not, generally speaking? Well, the first thing is self-monitoring. We give all of our clients a Garmin Phoenix watch and we monitor them constantly. You got one on? Yeah. We monitor them constantly. I've had this off my wrist for one day in the last five years that I didn't have data. And so I'm always looking at the things that I do in life and how it impacts my stress scores and my sleep, uh, my body battery, my resting heart rates, all of this. I mean, I was able to predict three of my clients getting COVID based on their metrics that they were showing up on their, they, they would text me and they're like, Hey, my stress level is like super high off of than normal. And I looked and the resting heart rate was going up and I was like, are you feeling okay? And they're like, I feel fine right now. But, and sure enough, in the next day or two, they would come down with COVID, but I track, so I get on a video call with my clients every month and we go through their data on their dashboard and I ask them about all the things they're doing. Like a lot of them didn't realize how impactful just even one glass of alcohol in the evening was with how it shot the stress up. But the biggest problem was having it in the evening, it shoots the stress up, but it interferes with the recovery time of the body when it needs to have the really high HRV in order to get the body recovered from the day. And when you're getting like four to five hours or even six hours of elevated stress from one alcoholic beverage, it carries into the night. So I have this one guy who's a, he's a uh, formula one racer from London, you know, in London, they, they socially drink on the weekends. So he'd go out on the weekends and, and he would drink with his friends and he'd say, well, you know, I only had two drinks, but you know, sure enough on Monday morning, his body batteries tanked and Monday and Tuesday, he just felt like crap every week. It was the same thing. And finally I said, okay, well, if you're going to drink, do it before about 3 PM. So you can have from noon to 3 p.m. He's like, we're in London. Nobody drinks in the midday. I was like, well, this is what you got to do if you want to have your drink. He started doing that. And sure enough, his recovery completely rebounded. And he was just amazed at how telling those metrics were and how he felt. Same with sleep. I mean, we can see how each thing interferes with the different, different sleep structures or the time. And you know, for me, I go to bed at no later than 9.30 every night. Most nights it's before nine. And I get up at usually 4.30 in the morning. That's my normal wake up. I haven't used an alarm in probably 10 years, but that's how my body wants to do it. It's not how everybody's body wants to do it. So we just help people to identify what their patterns are and what pattern maximizes that, that health span for them. All right. So, so if we have to tell physicians anything, it's the minimus alcohol after 3 p.m., if any. So, so this is me. I have a glass of wine nearly every night. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, lately I've noticed exactly what you're talking about. Like 
I really love red wine, like good red wine. And I, I don't know, I, I'm getting point. I don't think it's worth the cost. I mean, yeah. not financially, obviously, physiologically. So number one, de minimis alcohol after 3 p.m. Number two, sleep as much as you need, and that varies for different people. That was a big one for me. What's number three? How about diet? From a dietary standpoint, just clean eating. I mean, you know, we modified diet for everybody's preferences, unless they're like, oh, yeah, just like junk food. But you know, if they if they prefer to be vegetarian, if they prefer to be carnivore, if they prefer, you know, the I've found from genetics and epigenetics, the perfect human diet seems to center around a Mediterranean style diet. That's, and we can modify that Mediterranean style diet to fit most people's preferences and then supplement them to make the diet a more balanced, healthy one. But it's just eating real food. I mean, getting away from any of the processed foods, getting away from the, the sweets and too much simple carbs and focusing on just real foods. I don't minimize meat too much, although I'm starting to lean towards uh, less red meat intake for sure. And focusing on seafood just because of the longevity aspect of it. I think it's pretty clear cut now that, you know, the red meat can be detrimental in the long term. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's funny for a couple of years, I was pretty hardcore whitey, very keto. I mean, very little carbs and I've, you know, probably lost 25 pounds and I, you know, was running a lot and I kind of slipped back and I had a hot fudge Sunday which I want to see you fit that into your diet because I love them. I'm like, oh my God, I felt like crap afterwards. So I, and, and I'm a little bit like give a moose a muffin. You know, if I have one almond m and I'm like, give me the bag. So I've got to really be careful. I don't even have one. Okay. So diet, Mediterranean, less processed, sleep. What's next? Next would be mindset. And yeah. that's really a critical piece because you've got to get to the point where you don't look at things from a deficiency standpoint, because that anything in a deficiency standpoint distracts from life for you. It's going to be something that will occupy your brain in too many moments that you can't actually enjoy life. So the biggest one typically is financial. Another one is respecting the community. You know, are you somebody who has peers that actually value you? This is a big one for some people that we, especially in this, the community I deal with, is they're always looking for external validation of, of people having this and trying to, to be comfortable with where they are and really be comfortable with the people that are around them that they respect. I mean, I was just reading something about, you know, even a small amount of disrespect from people within a community has a, an enormous impact on person's self-esteem versus you know, even nobody's looking, you don't get this big a boost if you're like the most respected person in the community, just as long as you have a little bit of it, that people value you in some way. And, and this is a lot of, a lot of it is people are trying to figure out how they have value for others. So identifying that love is another big one. People are just so deficient in what they, they see as their love going out and the love that comes in for them. They question it all the time. And you've got to get beyond that and just really, you know, start to feel that and understand that it's there because you'll always be looking for the evidence that it's not. I mean, I talked to one person and she was saying that, you know, somebody can show me love 99% of the time, but that 1% that they don't tells me, oh, see, I knew that wasn't real. You know, that's evidence. It means everything. Yeah. So, okay, so someone's going to say, me right now, okay, so love and the ability to have empathy are two huge components of this balanced person. It mm -hmm. took you, the vascular surgeon, 
using psychedelics to have your aha moment, for lack of a better way to say it. So what do the rest of us do who don't have your courage and ability to do that? So you had to go out of the country to do that, correct? Yeah. Well, actually, there are some places, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of uh, Psychedelic Sciences, I think, I can't remember what the S is. They have certified practitioners that are actually using MDMA therapy now. They're very small numbers, but they're growing very quickly. And there's also some churches here in the U.S. that can do psilocybin and MDMA therapies. I mean, you got to remember MDMA prior to 1984 was used in over 500,000 counseling sessions by counselors in the United States, 500,000 times. And they had huge success, huge success with this. And it was taken off by the DEA and it was challenged in court. The judge said, yes, this should not be a schedule one because it does have therapeutic value. It was overruled by the DEA. They still kept it as a schedule one. It was challenged. Again, the judge said, this does not need to be a schedule one. They nixed it. So it cut all the research for like 15 years. I mean, we just lost all those years of all the benefits that MDMA had, but it's not like you have to have MDMA. MDMA was what kicked my ass to let me know without, you know, having to explore it, that this is a problem for me. You can work with people that understand this. I mean, there's a lot of counselors out there that really understand this aspect of most of them have been through MDMA therapy and they, they know how to use this. It's just, you know, MDMA can fast track things. So you don't need you know, two years of therapy, you can do it in, you know, two hours with MDMA. It's just amazing how it does that. But the counselors also said, you know, of anything out there, the best thing for couples counseling is MDMA. It's, will fix it in no time at all, the relationship issues. And I've actually seen that in some friends of ours that have gone through that. And there's a lot of underground counselors using MDMA here in the United States. I don't know how you find them. They're just, people tell me that they've, they've seen somebody. So, but it's amazing the results that they get. And, you know, this stuff's going to be approved probably in the next year. It's already decriminalized in many cities. So getting access to it, you know, the, the nice thing is as it becomes more common, you're more likely to get the stuff that isn't laced with something. So like ecstasy and molly are the same thing as MDMA, but they're not because they're typically laced with bath salts or methamphetamine because they're for partying. MDMA doesn't make you feel like you want to party. MDMA is, you know, the common thing is you have love puddles with MDMA. It's just people lay around and they hug on each other and they spill their heart out to each other. And they're very heart centric. I mean, they say things from the heart, even though it can be challenging for the person who's hearing it, but the, uh, the person that's on MDMA hearing it are very heart open too, and they'll take it and understand that it's not meant to be a challenge. It's just a really something that they've, they've noticed. And so it keeps ego out of the interactions, which is the coolest thing ever to watch is when that's removed and how people can communicate after ego is removed. Just amazing. Wow. So Daniel, where can people find out more about you and where can they sign up for your, your programs? I mean, I'm, you know, just speaking person, I'm, you know, I'm into this. And so I'm really interested in it. Where can people learn more about this and more about you? You can go to appearoncenter.com. It's A-P-E-I-R-O-N center.com. Or our parent corporation is appearonzoi.com, Z-O-H. Appearonzoi means limitless life. Very good. Well, I'm gonna, we'll post all this in the feed on the podcast. And I think you're going to get a lot of uh, people reaching out to you because I, I know a lot of physicians will be very intrigued by this and very intrigued by you and what you've done. You know, you don't, 
We've had some really cool podcast guests that have literally been top of their game, cardiovascular surgeons, neurosurgeons, vascular surgeon, and said, you know, there's something better out there that makes more sense to me like this did to you. So thank you for being on the podcast. This was inspiring and super interesting. Well, thank you. I love talking about this. I want to get more people to, to actually understand that how much better life can be, you know, when we give up these things that we're, that are patterns that we're stuck in. Totally true. Well, thanks. Thanks again, Daniel. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.